0: Welcome to the Pathfinders podcast by VWS. I'm your host, Jenny Stojkovic. Join me in intimate conversations with some of the world's most incredible women leaders in the future of food, fashion, beauty, and technology. We'll dive into their stories, how they built their companies, and how they've dedicated their lives to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Join us on our journey as we endeavor into this brave new future. You won't believe what's coming next. Hello, hello, everybody. It is Jenny Stojkovic. I'm here with another episode of the Pathfinders podcast. Today is going to be a super cool day because we have Rihanna Lin who is joining. She is the founder and CEO of Journey Foods. Hello, Rihanna. How are you? I'm great. I'm
1: great. I'm going to say I'm still reeling really off of last month's Vegan Women Summit. I've connected with so many awesome women from across the world that were just thrilled at what you put on, and I'm happy to follow up here with you in this chat.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. We were just saying before we jumped on, it's so incredible how much innovation is happening in the food space. And some of the work that you're doing at Journey, I'm really excited because I think a lot of people in food, they don't know this side of things. They don't really know, you know, how the data and the machine learning and all of this entire kind of world and how it can blend in with like food production and food waste and all that stuff that's going on.
1: Yes, you know, I have been in the food industry for a little over a decade now as both a technologist, as a scientist. And, you know, for most of the market, people forget about that that sort of complex middle side. We really think sometimes about uh, the farm and the farm to table and the agricultural inputs. And then we think about restaurants and delivery e-commerce and, you know, at the end of the consumer side. And for us, we're a big chunk of the innovation and the manufacturing goes. And where a lot of the costs ends up for most companies is right where Journey is dealing. And uh, we wanna make that part of the food value chain a little sexier and give more transparency into the complexities and the problems that exist, but also make it a lot easier for brands to just focus on what they do best, and that's market and think and ideate and uh, worry less about all of the regulations and the roadblocks that makes products good, right? Or at least get us to a better stream of making products better for consumers. And uh, happy to to chat about why we started this, why we went into it for Journey, why it's going to be so exciting in 2021 and in coming years.
0: So I just want to warn everybody now, there's going to be a lot of Journey puns throughout this conversation. I can just like feel it now. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into more of the nuances of what you're building and and what your vision is for the future food system, I'd love to take it back a few steps and and really kind of understand your journey. So I start these conversations at the very, very beginning. I'd love to know a little bit about where you were born, where you grew up. I know you're now down in the South in Texas, but you started up in a little bit of the Northern area in the US. And so what was life like growing up up in Illinois?
1: Yeah, you know, I grew up, so more background before that, most of my family migrated, some immigrated from the Southern part of the States. My grandparents migrated from Virginia, Alabama, Georgia to... The chicagoland area in the 60s actually between the 30s and 60s when you know it was where black folks were like leaving farm and in bigger land opportunities and trying to find jobs and i grew up in evanston illinois just right outside of chicago i love to see our our little town on like best suburbs to grow up or live in across the country and one of the reasons why i loved growing up there is because it's right on the water But we really have such a progressive community, about 80,000 folks, Northwestern University is based there. And I was able to gain a lot of exposure to science and ecology and nature very early on. I am a product of a single mother household. My mom was able to, and luckily because of just where I grew up, able to learn a lot about the world and the environment and also have the opportunity to uh, go to programs, like because of Northwestern being so close, that helped me meet young students from around the world that were very excited about science like myself, but I was also very interested in sports early on and ended up competing and, and becoming a national champion and then competing and going to University of North Carolina for college which is another great state for agriculture and sort of the food industry. And I actually was mentioning it now. I know another speaker from the summit uh, is also a Tar Heel graduate, Denise Woodard, founder of Partake take foods and I love the cohort of women that are coming out of University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, lots of uh, female food founders from there. And so that's the early story, but lots of lessons early on with family and entrepreneurship, but also I set out to solve some early issues around chronic disease because I was seeing it in my family. And that was why I decided to become at least what I thought was my pathway to becoming a scientist when I started college.
0: So. Did the whole family make it up from the South or did you kind of split time in between the two?
1: I still have a lot of family in Alabama and Georgia. Very proud of the Georgia family this week after uh, flipping the Senate and all the things that we did to turn the state, you know, kind of blue over the past couple months. But I was able to sort of go, go back sometimes in the summers, learn more about how my grandparents grew up farming. I joke with my grandmother a lot, and I'm very grateful to still have grandmothers to talk to, which are both two very big inspirations in two different ways, but somewhat similar. They've helped me get into food. One grandmother grew up growing persimmons and watermelons on a farm in Alabama, and she was able to create gardens uh, in her backyard that I learned from early on. Another grandmother of mine adopted, made her way up to Chicago, became one of the earliest yoga instructors, Black yogis uh, in the country, teaches all over the world. She's 88 years old. She's been vegan for decades. And so I was probably the only kid I knew, especially black kid growing up with a grandmother like that. So she exposed me very early as well to sort of the ills of the the food industry, hormones and all those things that she was learning. But my grandmother's just instilled this interesting sense of food and community and food and wellness for me, not only the practice of it outside and gardening, but also the practice of it when it comes to yourself as a temple. and. I was really proud of the sacrifices that they made, especially in the 60s to come up north and find ways to establish you know, a future there. And now it's sort of the tables turned. I'm trying to get them back down south and move to Texas as I see the future of the country really being in places like Austin and Atlanta and Miami and as things shift. But uh, yes, it's such an interesting uh, journey early on and discovering myself in this industry Naturally,
0: That's so incredible that you had like just not only being like a black yogi, I just got to go to the yoga thing. But that was rare at the time, but also like yoga at the time that she must have been, you know, really kind of like on the forefront. That's back when you had to like really like go over, you know, overseas and like mm-hmm. go find mm-hmm. the places. It was not everywhere. It was not ubiquitous like today.
1: No, I agree with you. I, she still tells me stories of going up to Montreal and Bahamas and India to really learn and set out on those treks of becoming, you know, a teacher. And she was very early on involved with communities that, you know, unfortunately have had uh, their struggle in recent years with sort of the uprising of women that are speaking their truth and their experiences with misogyny. Uh, in the industry as it was growing and becoming mainstream. She's very closely connected to that community and those stories. And so it's interesting now to just hear how everything's evolving, but I'm so grateful uh, to have generations of uh, people before me alive to just share these stories of how they became vegetarian or vegan or you know, carried gardening from Alabama to Evanston, Illinois. It's, it's something where every day as I wake up and think about how I wanna change and leave my mark
0: I've got to say, first off, all these conversations we have, there's always like mother, grandmother, there's always these women have these powerful women that came before them. You know, you always feel like you're on the shoulders of these other women before you. And it sounds like you were really raised by a lot of women. Yes. I
1: mean, I don't want to forget about my father and my grandfather. that, you know, my dad, entrepreneur who showed me that you could sort of create this path of course, and something and, and be really creative at it and very quantitative. My father and that's helped me, especially in going in a journey. And then uh, my father's father, he passed a few years ago, but he was actually in his retired life. He lived until he was 97, sold organic, like local meat, organic fruit, uh, had a distribution company. And I learned how to hunt and all these things from him just trying to dive in. Like he retired back to Virginia and I went to school in North Carolina. I would drive up three hours through the mountains to Blue Ridge and go visit him when he was, you know late 80s. And I learned a lot about local meat systems. And what was interesting, too, is that his mother was white. And I had a lot of Republican family members that I started to meet down in that part of Western Virginia. And that life was totally different. I did not respect before college, like hunting and sort of sustaining your family on those local food systems. And I grew a different respect, not only because of the sustainability of the meat compared to what we are used to, especially growing up in a major city like right outside Chicago. And so I would say all of my grandparents have really big impact on the way that I look at food. And my parents really helped set the groundwork for me in entrepreneurship and research. And my mom put a lot of work into making sure that I was exposed early on to science and math. And that still sticks with me today, you know, in journey and building out, you know, what we hope to be one of the world's best data companies for food. And yeah, what interesting shoulders to stand on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, on one hand, you've got this very creative side of like the health and wellness coming from one angle, but then you also have like, actual like the process, the food chain, like how things actually get to your plate that's a really special combination because those are the nuances that I sometimes feel like when we have these conversations with folks, they really come from one side and they have trouble seeing that other side or vice versa, particularly in the plant-based space. Just kind of understanding how other communities that are not in these urban environments where they get their food and how they think of food and what sustainability means to them, it's very different than what it means to you in San Francisco or in Chicago or Portland or, or whatever it might be.
1: No, that's interesting that you put it that way. You know, when I was able to first travel outside of the country or travel to the coast or even talk to family members in Alabama, like they didn't know what mangoes were, right? in they had never seen like fresh fruits sands, And our idea of fresh fruit is like getting it from a dole in the can, right? If you had something tropical, it was like a tropical fruit cup. And that was exciting. And when I started going to Mexico, and then by the time I started going to West Africa, and you see people that are, you know, what we define as impoverished, having this abundance of fresh food and understanding sustainability in a different way, it, it just blew my mind to think about. And, and this inspires me when I tackle, and my team tries to tackle packaged food journey is knowing that there's so many different ways to live that have kept communities thriving more naturally. And I get goosebumps sometimes thinking about even the 18 years that I spent with even some exposure to you know, upward mobility with the town that I grew up in, not knowing like really what fresh food was or having a different concept of sustainability than like someone my peer uh, that grew up in California. For example,
0: do you remember the first time you ever really saw, other than you know the gardens and stuff, growing up with your grandmother? But the first time you were in one of those countries and you like saw like the food being harvested, I remember myself. I was in Peru and we got to pull um, some yuca like out of the ground ourselves, and it is hard. I had no understanding how much you have to like <laughs> wedge yourself just to get one single one out. It is just crazy. I had no understanding of you know I see them at the store for sale, mm-hmm. but I'd never seen where it came from.
1: Right. No, I think there were a couple of times when it just blew my mind. I think I took a soccer trip in maybe it was 16 to Hawaii and they took us for a couple of days after the tournament ended to a pineapple farm and the smell of it, the clouds coming over the volcanoes and then like rolling up to the pineapple farm and the pineapple maze and just seeing how they grew and just feeling that energy and that nature and like the diversity of the plants and the colors. I was Blown away. I think there is no turning back. It's one thing, as you said, for my grandmother to grow beets, which I still think is magical, like in her backyard in Chicago, beets and all these herbs and garlic and things. But to see something like pineapple or agave plant or tuna, which also is known as like a prickly pear, to grow in its natural state, like in an abundant field in a country or on the roadside is just like life changing.
0: Yeah, I saw a, I went to a pineapple farm last year and the way that they like smoke them and like just like every single greenhouse is in like a different stage of like, you know, being harvested. It's just, it's wild, the complexity. And then it ends up as like a 25 cent fruit cup by the time you get it in Alabama.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And it's incredibly unsustainable, like not only the packaging, but then, you know, the sugars and the preservatives that are put in there and then like to our bodies, right? Of course. And that's something that we at Journey foods we have three values drivers and that is one help companies reduce the time to market like really increase efficiencies for them managing the data that makes their teams tick you know and bringing products to millions of people two it's like one stop shop for all the data that matters right and what's valuable for them and what we found as a company is we really want to focus on the sustainability and nutrition of these products and it's just wild what you find and discover has been the traditional methods for these individual fruit products or fruit snacks or fruit cups, especially over the past six years since like grocery stores have really launched. And we've tried to create these like meet sort of like convenience needs of growing populations. And then finally, it's like, how do we make every product better for every company? Like how do we really get to better? And we're still trying to define better. But as we just like find all this data about these processes where like the cup is manufactured in China and some of the fruit comes from Colombia and Thailand and then the sugars are processed like in another country and the water usage and then the plastic filing and the graphics package are in another country and they're brought together and they're shipped you know, over to one part of the US and then maybe around the US. And then, but some cups have to go even back, you know, to another country where they even came from because they don't have like uh, some of the manufacturing in place. And that's always been something of mine that when I discovered from reading uh, Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa in 1972 book, that was going to be a part of my mission. And I didn't think that I would be able to do it in the way that I'm doing it with Journey sort of the problems that come with sustainable companies, sustainable countries, and the lack or the presence of manufacturing and what that means for the local community and what that means for the sustainability of our products. And what I think is going to be most exciting in the next few years is that manufacturing will come back to the United States and we will see an uptick of more sustainability here. But it definitely took us 20, 30 years of like waste just to try to meet the bottom line so that we can have a cheap product for us that just like in so many ways didn't work out yeah yeah
0: i find them at the bottom of the ocean when i'm diving unfortunately
1: well i don't know the last time i dove I'm looking forward to that. But no, that's unfortunate. Like, that's a whole another subject, you know, fish and and diving experiences. I think the first time I snorkeled or scuba of like, in the experiences of fish compared to, like, a couple years ago, I think, when I last went, it's just, like, it's vastly different. It is. Have you noticed that? Like, how long have you been diving or, like, swimming with fish or anything?
0: Well, I've been diving for five years. I just became a rescue diver a few weeks ago, actually. And congrats, congrats. It was hard, by the way, (laughs) but, you know, it is really unfortunate just in the time in 2015 when I dove the Great Barrier Reef to what it looks like today you know, 95% of the Philippines have destroyed their reef, you know, beyond repair. Like it's changing really, really quickly. At this point, Bali has become so overrun with tourists that they now will let you dive for free or really cheap. If you agree to pick up trash when you're under, they do like trash dives now.
1: Wow. Yeah. I've seen the change even in like the blue range of Belize or, you know, some of the ranges of Colombia. I haven't been to the Great Barrier Reef But uh, diving in like Thailand and other places, just like crazy the change.
0: Yeah, it's really unfortunate. Well, okay, we'll get more into that. I want to take it back to, you know, on your journey. Again, another pun here. You made it to UNC where I want to make a note here that there is so much food coming out of UNC right now. It's ridiculous. I mean, Raleigh, I think, has got the biotech that's coming out of that area is crazy. What is the magic going on there? What magic did it bestow upon you?
1: (laughs) You know, I don't know. We didn't even talk about entrepreneurship that much when I was there. Somehow, with all of the craziness, I was competing all over the country. I was a javelin and discus thrower there as well while I was, you know, studying whatever degrees I was studying. And one thing that I did notice is that, like, early on, this sort of CPG, sort of local food community was really bubbling up in a way that I had never been exposed to like co-op grocery stores and you know, local ice cream and breweries and you know local food systems was mm-hmm. a very big part of the food, especially in Chapel Hill, Carrboro area. And then of course, the triangle research was just really instilled in not only the education, but just the whole environment and the energy. And now more and in- a lot of that money is coming back into like angel investment, of course. And so you're just seeing in this, the state is a big agriculture state. I think it's the number one state for black farmers in the country, more than 10 billion a year in, in black farming. And so the mixture of that, like broadly within the state and then locally the, in the Triangle region, has really spun up some interesting entrepreneurship and research.
0: That's interesting, the black farmer. I mean, that's a rarity. The statistics on that have to be pretty wild, right?
1: Yeah, I think like, I don't wanna be misquoted here, but I'm pretty sure that like more than 85% of black farms have been acquired, shut down, like illegally transferred in some ways, lots of things, well, lots of history with the USDA as well and funding over the past hundred years. But there has been a good support system of farmers, a decent one in North Carolina.
0: Yeah, I think North Carolina is a special place. The community in Raleigh and the Triangle, there's a lot that's going on there. I think a lot more than people have realized yet. I think that's part of the kind of rise of the rest, rise of the South kind of that that we could talk about a little bit. I think that they're going to be on the up and up, like huge.
1: Yeah, the rise of the rest. I mean, I'm happy you said that. And, you know, like I said, the female founders from UNC, I mean, you have Christine Mosley from Full Harvest, another Tar Heel. Yeah, I'm blanking on the name now, but Simple Mills is another brand, Partake Foods. There's a few ice cream, plant-based ice cream owners as Chapel Hill mm-hmm. Tar Heel graduates that are up in New York. And I'm like, we're all sort of these million-dollar food babies coming out of Tar Hill system. I think they're coordinating a panel for us to like come back and talk to students. I'm really excited about it.
0: Oh, I'm sure. There was uh, one of our podcasts a few weeks ago, BioMilk. They're also out of North Carolina too, and they're Cell-based breast milk, you know, we also, there's also a cell-based gelatin made from jellyfish nice. that they're growing in a lab, like all out an, all in the same area right now. Just totally wild women, all women as well.
1: I love that. I have to look that up. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So UNC, and then at some point you're hitting the White House. Like, how do we get to the White House here? Well,
1: I just needed to work for the first Black president, and Michelle Obama's there too, Chicago and So what happened? I just started to get into graphic design and website building sort of on the side before it really became a thing at UNC. Like, computer science was more of a thing at Duke, and we took classes at both, but UNC was more like public health, biology, science, life sciences. And so I was really falling into that and some other studies, more macro scale. So I was like coding in my bedroom and my dorm and became pretty good at it. And then a friend of mine was at the journalism school and they have a, one of the best journalism schools in the country. And so we built a media company in like two weeks after Obama, uh, like in turn for, you know, locally to get to turn this state purple, blue uh, back in 2008, launched a media company, created these like fake, but like real uh press passes and literally applied to every single event at inauguration i mean i met the most celebrities ever that week and then i ended up meeting my future boss his name is dr rick kittles he had just been on 60 minutes For running his company African Ancestry. I don't know if you know who Skip Gates is and they do all the tests with like Oprah and tell them like where they're from in Africa and his company was doing all of that genetic testing and he got an award and I thought that was so cool because it's really into genetics and sort of health outcomes and I went up to him with my like fake media card like I want to work for you and he was researching at University of Chicago at the time and same department as the first lady Michelle Obama and they were just transitioning into the White House and so I ended up researching for him and got him to write me a letter I was going to go intern for them or figure out how to go to D.C and I got there and they just loved my background. They wanted me to work on everything but like black issues, youth entrepreneurship. I had just launched my first company at the time and it was scaling like crazy, a chain of plant-based like raw foods and, and a juice bar. And at that time in late 2010, 2011, there was literally nothing like it in the Midwest. It's just Jamba juice. We were just trying to be like the folks on the coast and bring that to the Midwest. And we were growing like crazy, uh, but I got the opportunity to work there. And the great thing is they were sending everyone to order juice from us from a local like Obama HQ. And so it helped us grow a little bit. That wasn't illegal at all. It was like you know, just getting juice to feed for the second term, all of the uh, workers. But uh, that was just an incredible experience. I did not ever sleep. I would wake up at like 6 a.m. to go work in First Lady's garden and finish like past midnight running some projects on American Jobs Act or, I mean, it was just thrilling. And I'm so excited for that energy to return to the White House soon. Just, you know, like a level of inclusivity, president-elect Biden really cares about science, you know, and and that's exciting. I remember when I was at the White House, we had the Office of Science and Technology Policy, and there was so much respect and importance around the ideas there, but also like women in STEM, you know, there were articles and blogs I would write on that. And so I'm very thrilled for that to return, and I can't wait for that energy to help us Get more wins for you know the plant-based growth, but also just scientific breakthroughs in general and see more women as part of those.
0: Hey everyone, it's Jenny. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation. If you are, would you mind doing me a favor? Please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Today's podcast is brought to you by Veg Capital. Veg Capital Provides early stage capital to companies striving to replace the use of animals from the food system. At Veg Capital, we believe that conventional animal agriculture is an inefficient, cruel, and unsustainable food production system which is ready for innovation and large scale disruption. To learn more about the work at Veg Capital, go to vegcapital.co.uk. That must have been just such an incredible experience, you know, just to, I always rephrase it as, like, to be in the room where it happened, right? Like, that must have been just so amazing. What was your favorite memory, I've got to say, with either of the Obamas?
1: So, one, I would have, so, with First Lady, I got to set a Guinness Book of Records for jumping jacks one day i was working just trying to manage like fifth graders right she wanted 500 like eight to ten year olds start the jumping jacks with her then it like cascaded to this worldwide jumping jacks hour and these fifth graders were so in love with her so they ended up putting some of us like in the middle of them to like do the jumping jacks the all the film crews cnn was like filming it live and as soon as like the first minute ended 400 fifth graders like running at her to get hugs. <laughs> and I'm just like trying to not like throw fifth graders down, you know, cause there's not enough like secret service and all of them to like, and I didn't want to like just send them out and scare them. So we're just like, Hey, like you can't hug her yet. Like she's has been like, 15 hugs at a time. And, like, I just, like, all over seeing it, and It's pretty funny. But I also got the world record T-shirt. And she was so kind. Like, just so poised and kind as she hugged, like, all these little kids. as they were jumping on her. And then with President Obama, I actually saw him, like... 10 times more than the first lady. And I don't know, there were just so many experiences and I'm still thinking about it to this day, but uh, I was walking in the hallway and there was a couple of times that I knew he was like, making his rounds and I would like (laughs) go in the hallway like with the the photographers are there and I would try to like get another like hi or like handshake or like talk to him because I was in the, you know, he's in the West Wing and then the executive office where most of us work, it's like 20 feet away. He's not always over there. And so... I became backup photographer for events. (laughs) Like we were having so many events every single day with the Office of Public Engagement where there were like CEOs and nonprofit leaders and just everyone coming in every single day. And someone was just like, we don't have enough pictures for all of our blogs and events. And I literally never had lunch. I just like, I tried to go to every event, just taking pictures of them. So I think it was just that experience of like being and i have some white house archives where i'm like credited for the pictures of him and i think that's something that like i'll never forget and i'm so grateful that i got the opportunity to jump into that
0: so for using like an actual slr or was this just like iphone
1: yes yes i had to like learn it <laughs> like within 2 days and they're just like sending me to events because You know, there are only really two main White House photographers that traveled all the time and they can't work everywhere. And he's just in and out. He'll come speak for like two minutes, pop out. So yeah, that was my experiences. And I hope that the many young folks can have something like that with Biden and Vice President Harris in the coming months and years. It's just magical to think back on.
0: You know... A part of me feels like this whole exodus remote work phenomenon where so many people are in flux. And I think we all know that SF and New York and a few of those hotspots are going to look very different when the dust settles. It almost feels like it's striking at the exact right time for the brain gain to go back to DC. I don't know. It's just, I think there's going to be more Zoom
1: calls, like, you know, the presidential posters in the background, but we'll probably have like inauguration happen, inauguration and Zoom (laughs) if things continue how they did this week. But, you know, for me, what I'm grateful about is that I chose a city and we have investors down in Texas that just really encompasses the quality of life that you want, right? Like nature, outdoors. CPG industry here is great. People really care about sustainability and local sustainable food systems. And in DC, you even have that, a little bit of that too. And it's just a great city for young folks, you know? When I was there, like the outdoors, the parks, the museums, the farmer's markets, the urban farming, it's a very diverse city. And I hope that that energy can come back, but who knows with some of the, the Zoom interest now and people just want like space. I do, however, think that you'll see folks leaving, yes, San Francisco, New York to spend more time in like a DMV area.
0: All right. So I want to get into like where the future of this is going, especially for food tech, but let's get you from, so you're in DC. Now you're the founder of Journey Foods. What was that path kind of maybe a little bit quickly, what that looked like for you? Yeah. So
1: I went and launched a software company right after that in the juice bars, just to work on some issues we were dealing with and got the attention of Google, then spent a couple of years at Google after some acquisitions and learned more and more about Silicon Valley and the way to build a company and pitch a company and build technology stacks that can scale very fast to solve problems and and why data matters. And so I was spending a lot of time in the Bay between 2015 and 2017. And then I was able to meet the uh, Don Thompson, the former CEO of McDonald's. He had just finished his contract with McDonald's joined the board of Beyond Meat, and he wanted to scale out an investment firm, one of the biggest investment firms for food in the country. And it will be, I believe soon, definitely in the United States and one of the biggest in the world. And asked me to uh, help direct strategy there and we led investment put more than 23 million i think and beyond me still lead investors through the ipo and also invested in zero cater and uh, farmers fridge and a lot of other sort of midwest base but now many other companies from around the country and While I was there, I still saw a lot of issues when it came to data and efficiencies, even some of the most well-funded companies and major multinational food sort of conglomerates were facing tremendous time issues and data issues when it came to meeting consumer needs and decided to take a step back from the venture firm and start uh, piloting a few products for Journey. And at the time I said, let me just find food scientists and data scientists to come along with me uh, and test out a product line and see if we can pull some levers in the cloud and not go through traditional like manufacturing and Google search processes and broker and procurement processes that were so inefficient. And so my goal was to lower the cost and lower the sugar just through some data models and with one of the world's most popular food types, and that's fruit snacks. That's an almost you know, every country has their version of fruit snacks or they get those through distribution. And we presented those results a couple of years ago and a few months later launched our first version of the software as we requested to try to deploy uh, the same methodologies onto sauces and pastas and cookies and other things. And now very grateful to just have an ambitious goal and that's to be, create the most actionable database for food companies for packaged food in the world, but to also make it integrated so that the tools that companies are using today, whether that's Excel or Google Sheets or SAP or Oracle or however they manage their food, to be highly dynamic as they add on Journey Foods so that we can catch Not only issues in the supply chain, but we can recommend the best chain of action for their product portfolio.
0: So this sounds like the way that you describe it and what you're doing at Journey, it sounds like like duh. Of course, this kind of inefficient you know, this can be worth these pennies add up to millions and tens of millions and probably billions at some point, you know. So it seems very obvious the need for it. And the fact that you found this white space seems shocking. I'm curious to hear, do you remember the first time you pitched it? Do you remember how your first pitch went?
1: I mean, it's probably the Don or one of the earliest ones. I think I was in Milan, which sounds crazy. (laughs) That was like first real public pitch. But in a small room, when I pitched it, it was around the Journey Bites. You know, like I don't even know what I said, but I was like, we want to find, use data to create (laughs) like low sugar plant-based gelatins for the world's most popular snack. And I mean, it's some of it is still range true today, but we were just trying to like make science work for something, you know, for a fruit snack for something sweet, right? Just my co-founder had been running some Skittles teams. And I was just like, we're bringing him to the good side. I would say that sometimes in the pitch, like Andy's coming to the good side. And we just kept pushing through it. And it was clear more and more that like our process was more important than the product, right? And there's hundreds of thousands of CPG companies that struggle every single day but have great branding, great founders, great missions and I would much rather off of our services bring together, you know, great scientists and engineers and builders to make sure that like so many brands can break through.
0: So obviously, we've kind of described two different things for the listeners, there's the actual product that you're talking about the journey bites, as well as the software and the systems that you're building. So is that still in operation, both verticals? Are they two separate companies? Or what's the kind of vision for the next few years? So, we don't
1: really sell the bites. We sell them sort of one off. We might launch them on Amazon for like if we discover a new ingredient or something that really be exciting for the market, like an, a new way to process CBD into like with sweets or a new gelatin, or we have a new ingredient partner, we may launch something. But 99.9% of our business is focused on building this database, the most actionable database, and making sure that we can work with founders, and innovation teams, and growth teams, and food science teams, so that they can solve issues like, how do we make our products 10% more sustainable? How do we bring functional ingredients to our beverages and sell them in both Canada and the US when there's different regulations around banned ingredients, for example? How do we launch a plant-based shrimp in three different markets? And those are questions that we're trying to solve for them as they bring their data and their products onto our platform. And that's super exciting for us. And we'll continue to raise to bring on more great people. I love the folks that work with us today and we get awesome applications all the time. And another thing that we did is launch more private beta and we're launching it more publicly this quarter is packaging. And so we're able to bring in the packaging for each of the products and give our company scores and recommendation lists as well. So we can close the loop on the final packaging for them.
0: Well, I know a certain plant-based shrimp company that just closed a lot of money so that they can start scaling out. So it might be the one that I'm thinking of.
1: (laughs) No, there's several that I'm excited about. Mm. And what's most exciting about the products in these categories is that everyone of every background of every economic is excited and learning and becoming more exposed to plant-based and better for you food now, especially after COVID, just like people want more immunity in their diets. They want more functionality. They want less of the like, you know, just yep. all of the detrimental effects that come with the food that has been manufactured and processed or brought to us in non-plant-based forms for the past few decades, or as we've grown, even as, as millennials, most of our lives, you know, if we didn't have family members that just like made everything from baby food to like all of our milk. And I'm extremely excited for the companies that are raising and launching today. And some of them we work with and some we hope to work with as we scale up and open our team and our platform more this year, especially. What's the ingredient
0: that excites you the most right now?
1: That's such a hard question because I'm thinking about it and
0: like... Well, maybe what's an ingredient you want to see maybe come out as a more sustainable
1: I like that. I mean, I still think that even though there's a lot of alternative powders especially now it's interesting i was thinking about it the plant-based industry in canada is so interesting right now and they have all these different grains mm-hmm. and pulses that are helping create like alternative flowers and ways to get protein and the thing is though we've had like all these almond flour alternatives mm-hmm. and all these baked goods that are coming out you know but they still are have like, extreme amounts of water waste and the agricultural processes. And so I'm very excited for us to have more breakthroughs with these alternatives that are like gluten-free or you know, less processed and less bleached and all that, but to make sure that they also have a lot less water waste. Right, I think more geopolitically, like we're gonna face a lot of water issues in the next couple of decades and we need to sort of jump on that a little bit sooner. But you know, ingredients in general, I'm just excited just what a wide range of African species alternatives that I think are more naturally nutrient dense and organic, even if if you compare like hibiscus or hamica or just the different ways that you want to call it to an amount of vitamin E and vitamin C that comes out of like something grown in West Africa compared to even unfortunately the GMO effects of something grown in like North America. It's just vast difference in the flavor and the nutrient density. And so I'm excited just for ingredients in general to come out of Africa. And we've definitely been creating those pathways and some of that, those data inroads with our partners.
0: Yeah. Speaking specifically to the African different products that are coming out, like we had for our pitch competition, there was a company called Tommend that made it to our finalists. And for those that aren't familiar with them, Tommend, so you hear the word almond in it, it's a tropical almond and they are making, it's the African version of the California almond that everybody knows. And it's something crazy, like 80 or 90% less water intensive to grow. And you can make almond milk and almond powder and all these same things out of it, it's just grown over in Ghana instead of, right. you know, the, the highways off of like the Bay Area, you know? And so I think that this totally new world of food that we can uncover, there's so many plant proteins out there that we have no idea what they can do. In Canada, they're doing the same thing, right? They're starting to uncover all these different proteins that we weren't using fava. Fava is getting really popular up there. That's an old food. That's not a new food. We just, you know, basically in North America, we weren't using it. I mean, a lot of North American culture is based off of the same few proteins. Right, right. There's four beans at the store in a can, but how many more are actually out there in the world? (laughs) So many more. And I
1: love also what will be the growth of Native American and indigenous food. in our diet. And you know, there's a lot that we can scale up on the agricultural side. So we just got to keep talking about it. And it's gonna happen. Yeah. And keep having folks like you bring these communities together and building great amplification of it.
0: Yeah. It's a big world out there and we're we're putting the pieces together. So this is a question that I ask all of our founders. I'm just gonna put it out there. What do you think was the biggest mistake you've made as a founder so far? And what did you learn from it?
1: You know, I think for me it's always been like technical debt right the money spending money like i think about entrepreneurship and scaling 20 30 years ago like we weren't even raising venture capital and i always go back and forth on like if it's skewing our ability to create really roi very efficient companies and when i spend time with entrepreneurs from like Arkansas because we spent a lot of time working on some Walmart projects beginning of 2020 or spend time in Canada because we're incorporated in Canada now and doing a lot in the Canadian market and they are just like the money that they raise and the money that <laughs> the flips that they do is just so different than how we're raising money here in the U.S. it's almost like funny money I think sometimes you get to IPO and so I would tell people that like don't be discouraged If you're not on the list for raising millions and millions of dollars from some venture capitalists, there's so much impact and so much revenue and so much product that you can drive from alternative methods. And I always think about my ROI and spend early on, on, you know, trying to scale faster than we had product market fit. And so uh, money can skew that. And so be smart about how you spend the money and spend it slower than you want or project.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's been a theme a few times throughout this conversation, right? It's just the way that we've really driven food tech so far has kind of been out of the valley. We've taken a tech approach. As you mentioned, venture capital, venture capital wasn't really of any real significance until the seventies. It was invented because people in New York wanted to get their hands into what they were building at Stanford. right? And so companies existed a long time before venture capitalists came along and they're going to exist a long time after. And so I really think that, you know, food tech has tried to copy the tech industry in a lot of ways. And a lot of exactly. um, a lot of those companies are all in California or in the Bay Area in particular. But I think that that rise of the rest, especially some of these like your Austins, your North Carolinas, I mean, even like, Atlanta, as you know, Pinky over there is creating like the slutty vegan empire. There's so much more potential for us to do food tech in a way that we are utilizing the talent of everybody all over. We don't need to all be hiding in Berkeley, we don't need to all be in the Bay Area,
1: right? No, exactly. And also, there's so many passionate people that love food that love restaurants that love creation, that love farming, that need to be a part of this revolution, and are builders and great communicators and great thinkers and great researchers. And I love that for our team as we have been diversifying and finding ways to create more content and community. And it just gives me goosebumps to think about how inclusive it could be. And he's saying rise the rest. I just love that. And I I hope that really takes shape. In the next couple of years
0: do you want to plug austin for everybody why'd you build in austin well
1: the money here is less risk averse in some of the other parts of the country but no really it's warm i worked out in my backyard this morning as i do many mornings It's january <laughs> there's a wonderful cpg scene here i can go hiking on the weekends and watch sunsets just like you have a lot of the like bay area energy but You get the full, like the Texas space and just, you know, builders here as well. And there's good food here, good local food. You get a lot of energy too from Mexico. And that's one of my favorite places, Mexico City, all over Mexico. I grew up like in high school, college, went there a lot. And so I love that energy and Mexican culture as well and and food. And I do believe that Silicon Valley is now spreading its wings around the rest of the country. And It's exciting to get talent, but also some of these bigger companies that want to support folks like me, like Google, for example, were built on the Google stack and supporting me as a founder. And so I just want to build a company in a place where people can have joy while they're working and when they're not working and, and live just a quality life.
0: I think that we need to call Steve Adler's office. That's the mayor of Austin, everybody. And just, you know, give them the quote like Bay Area energy, Texas space. Awesome Texas baby. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's exactly what's happening down here, and I welcome anyone. I mean, we hire remote, we hire in Canada, we hire in Austin, so I welcome more pings, please, to my LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram, whatever it may be. And you definitely need some good folks my way. We've had some a few interviews since the conference, and uh, welcome more.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. That's exactly what I like to hear. So as we kind of leave off the audience, what do you think is the advice that you would like to leave the listeners that are thinking about maybe building a company? particularly the women founders, because it's different being a woman when you build something, especially being a black woman, when you build something, you know, what advice would you like to leave them with?
1: Just find your tribe, right? Because like sometimes human capital is important as that first 5k, 25k, 100k, and you'll get there, right? you find that those people that you can call all the time that can be sort of your fake lawyer researcher or that can build that website for you or help you with the social media or the newsletter or you know that first six months is so important but also be daring I've gotten where I've gotten because I've decided to like send that cold call or that cold LinkedIn and or you know publish that blog that I was super nervous about even though I can go back and edit it and believing that like there is another and so many more steps ahead in your path and that there are so many people out there that want to support you and even if you haven't met them yet and so the daring part and just believing in yourself and it'll, it's hard. I mean, there's times when you like believe in yourself for like two weeks and then all of a sudden, like for two days, you're like, oh, it's like I can't do any of this, <laughs> but it, it comes and goes and you're always going to face that, but know that the resilience is built around the strength of your tribe very early on, especially, and your ability to dare beyond your own doubts.
0: And also it doesn't help to have good Photoshop skills to fake a press badge. <laughs>
1: Yes, pick up a couple strong, like I would say something in Adobe Suite and something around like some web editing development, whether it be like learning a little bit more on the Shopify side or, you know, WordPress or something, because There'll be those days where you're waiting for the check to come and you might need to just dive in yourself. So picking up those extra skills on YouTube or something is always helpful. Yeah, absolutely.
0: (laughs) All right. The last question I'm going to leave you with is for those that are joining that are vegan, obviously, lots of the VWS audience is vegan, 77%. In fact, why is big data significant to building a plant-based world? What's your pitch to them?
1: You know, I believe veganism is a very, very huge part of the future in every community, but still overwhelmingly, the food that we have created and manufactured today is not fully plant-based. And in order to meet the needs of billions of people, with especially 10 main companies running most of the food brands and 90% of the product around the world, we're going to need to accelerate you know, and undo 40 years of industrial change in our food systems. And so data is more important than ever, so that we can uh, reverse a lot of that.
0: All right, well said. Well, Rihanna, I mean, soccer star, javelin thrower. (laughs) We didn't even touch on Google. We just like that Google got like a one sentence appearance on today's conversation. Serial entrepreneur, what photographer? I don't know what we missed here but I imagine that there will be a few more that come down the pipeline in the next (laughs) few years. We'll see what else you build. It's been incredible chatting with you today. And I really thank you for taking the time to speak to our audience. And I look forward to catching up on, on what you guys got going on. And heading to Austin, of course. I'm in Mexico right now. Your other favorite place. And then Austin.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Come up here. I have some three team members moving here in the next month. So come hang out with us. I will get some good food here. I'll take you to some of the the newer plant-based spaces out here. Outside, of course. But Jennifer, thank you so much for the chat and uh, launching off 2021 with these great questions. And of course, I know you said I'm like all these Jane of all trades, not all of them were that great. But you know, I kept pushing forward. And you know, for me, I tell people that like, I will always be a lifetime food activist. And in whatever way I create that wheel and spin that wheel, I hope to continually be a part of this community. So thank you so much. And we'll chat soon.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for today's Pathfinders podcast. I hope you'll rate and subscribe to follow more conversations like today. If you want to learn more about how to get involved with VWS, please check out veganwomensummit.com or follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram with at Summit and on Twitter with at Summit. Don't worry, you can find the links in the show notes. We're building a global community of women dedicated to creating a kinder, more sustainable world. Powered by CEOs, investors, celebrities, Olympians, and more, our events and media platform reaches thousands of women every day across six continents. We'd love your support. You can reach out to sponsor this podcast and more at veganwomensummitcom sponsors. See you next time.